Hey there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining today's show is Anne Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Just a quick word from our friends at Vodafone Business before we kick off the show. Vodafone Business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs, but now they are so much more. They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer just a telecoms provider, they're a comprehensive technology partner. They're really stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice and cutting-edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember, Vodafone Business is there to support, guide, and empower you every step of the way. Hi, Marie. How are you? Just myself and yourself on today. No, Emma, she's off on his holidays. How are you now? I'm good. I'm... I'm I feel like this is one of those shows where I might be a bit distracted because like every ounce of my brain is thinking about things completely unrelated to my job. Like, where where is that submarine? That submarine where did it go? Like, did you see all the stuff coming out about it? Like it's using a old PlayStation controller yeah. and there's like safety issues. It wasn't it wasn't supposed to go down half as deep. And oh, my God, it's tragic. Yeah. So many things like such an issue. But they um, New York Times ran a story today that. They think they can hear it, so maybe something positive will come for that. But, like, I'm just so, I don't know. It's like, why didn't they put a leash on it or something? You know, I, I just, I don't get why I just, like, went down there and, and just we lost communication with it all coming together. So that's number one. That's that's what That's, <laughs> that's number one on the priority list. That's number two. Yes. The Taylor Swift announced that the Eras Tour is coming to Dublin yesterday. Which... Yeah, we, we were talking about, I was talking about this with, uh, with my girlfriend and... We we were saying like I don't think there's going to be like a quarter of the excitement in Europe. People aren't going paying ten grand for tickets to go to oh, yeah. Taylor Swift in Madrid. Are you just, do you think so? No, I don't think they will. But um, a lot of the dynamic pricing stuff that Ticketmaster does in the U.S. is illegal in the EU. So we're definitely not going to have that kind of like crazy price points. But I do think she's going to sell everything out. Sure, Dublin, they're only playing, she's only doing two nights so far in the Aviva, which is not a big enough venue for her. She should be doing three nights at Crow Park, but obviously scheduling issues and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's going to be bedlam trying to get tickets. I'm calling it now. It will be the most difficult thing I will do all year. (laughs) But you will do it. I you might end it, yeah. up you might end up in Antwerp or Tallinn, but you'll be going to Taylor Swift in Europe at some point. Yeah, well, and it's also like we're buying it so this is for next June. Well, one year in advance we must acquire next June. Wait, so yeah. she's is this is the same tour and she's just keeping yeah. going. Yeah, because she has to finish out, right? So she's going to finish out the U.S. at the end of the summer. And then she's going to South America at the beginning of the winter. And then at the and then like uh, February, March, she has to do Australia and Asia. And then we are getting her, yeah, next summer. That's mad. Yep. So I suppose this is the only way musicians make money anymore, isn't it? Just big tours. Yeah, and this is like, I have a feeling, because this is like the Eras tour. She's like recapping all of the albums. So there is the chance that like she will do this big blowout international tour and then she'll disappear for a while. So I feel I feel the pressure to go. I feel like this is, you know, this is the tour. <laughs> right. Well, I'm yeah. sure everyone uh, that's listening tuned in to hear us talk about a Taylor Swift concert. Uh, but there are more important things, and I don't want to be the first to say it, but potentially the boom is back on Wall Street. We've had our first venture-backed unicorn IPO of the year. So a unicorn IPO is a private company backed by venture capitalists that went public for over a billion quid, essentially. Uh, and that company in question was Cava, the fast, casual Mediterranean dining, kind of like a Greek 
Chipotle. Is that a fair description of it, Amory? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so I've had, so I've had the salsa for hummus, and you've kind of got a similar thing. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into it. For listeners who don't know the company, what just tell us a bit about it and its kind of story and all the rest. Yeah, so it actually started out as just a single Greek restaurant. It didn't have any of these fast, casual chain ambitions. And that was back in 2006 by these three guys. Um, I'm so sorry if I butcher these guys' names. They're all Greek. So there's Dimitri Moshevitz, uh, Ted Zianatros, and Ike Gregoropoulos. And they are all first-generation Americans. They all come from Greek families. They're from Maryland. And together, uh, they opened a restaurant in 2006. And it was just to bring their home Greek cuisine to the great people of Maryland. And then they kind of realized that, like, this was pretty big. Like, people seem to like this. So in 2008, they decided to launch some dips and spreads just to kind of get their name out there and bring this food to more people. And then that resulted in them meeting a guy named Greg Shulman, who... Is this was the COO of a company called Snickety Snacks. Excellent mm. name. 10 out of 10. That was in 2009. Uh, and then he went on to become CEO, and he is kind of the, the, the idea maker of, hey, this Greek restaurant idea is really great. What if we made it into a fast casual and made it a chain? And that birthed Kava. Um, at yeah. least what we now know is Kava. It had a couple different names prior to that. I feel like when I was reading their backstory and stuff, this is the Justin Timberlake part of the social network. Yeah. Movie, yeah. Where it's like three dudes came in, they're having great fun running their little Greek restaurant and selling a few dips. And now they're like, do you know what's cool? 400 restaurants everywhere yeah. across the country. Hummus in one place isn't cool. You know what is cool? <laughs> hummus everywhere. Humongous. We put the yeah. hummus in humongous. Yeah. So uh, that meant that the first actual Cava restaurant, as we know it today, opened in 2011 in Bethesda, Maryland. Can't, can't stray too far from there. And two of the original guys, Garopolis and Xenotropis, they are still involved, but they do not sit on the board or in like an official managerial position. They're more in like the conceptual culinary end of things because that's where they started out. They were very important in establishing the menu. So I kind of like to see that, to be fair. You know, we tend to see with like, like if you have a company that's really design focused or it's food focused and you have someone who came from that background, sometimes it's a shame to like waste their talents, put them in like the CEO position. So I liked seeing that. Um, and basically, they've just been expanding from there gradually, chain by chain. But interestingly, in 2018, Cava decided to acquire Zoe's Kitchen, which was a rival fast casual Greek restaurant. And that has kind of transformed the way that they're expanding because they're just rebranding a lot of these Zoe's mm. locations because they're in quite a similar vein. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting way and cost efficient way of expansion, essentially. So they bought, yeah. what was it, 300 store? I, I can't remember the name, but a couple of hundred storefronts. Yeah, 300 million. Yeah. Yeah. And then they knew there was already a market there for that kind of food. So instead mm -hmm. of going and having to establish, establish yourself, set up new rents and all the rest, they did it all in one fell swoop. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and they picked up quite a bargain at three hundred million at two hundred and sixty locations in twenty states for three hundred million dollars. So, like, that's that's pretty good. I mean, essentially, all yeah, as you said, all you got to do there is like change the color scheme, the the name on the door, and then maybe adjust the menu a little bit. So, and plus, you probably it's quite an easy transition then to get an audience that was already excited about Zoe's Kitchen, like Kava's same same type of food. So that was easy enough. Uh, in twenty twenty one, they completed a hundred ninety million dollar uh, round of funding, which priced them at about one point three billion and as of today they currently have 263 restaurants uh, 145 of those are zoe's kitchens that have been rebranded they will finalize the full zoe's kitchen rebrand hopefully by the end of 
2023. Um, and then they've just been consistently opening new restaurants. Uh, they've opened like 51 new locations since 2018. So again, just with that kind of consistent expansion, like we would want to see from one of these hyper growing fast casual chains. But more importantly to the menu and what they offer and what makes them special, uh, very similar to a Chipotle type thing, a noodles and company thing, a, a sweet green uh, you know, you got that base entree that you got to pick out. So, you know, rather than a burrito, a burrito bowl, you have to pick out whether you want a green grain or just a green or just a grain kind of uh, base, or if you want to go for a pita. And then you just kind of pick out your sauces, your hummuses, what type of meat you want, whether that be falafel or chicken or lamb. And then there's lots and lots of veg options, you know, uh, everything from, you know, tomatoes and corn all the way up to what do we have here? Crushed feta. Uh, and then, Again, more dressings, which is interesting because we I've never been to Cava because it didn't exist in Colorado when I lived there. And it also seems to be quite concentrated on the East Coast of the U.S. So I did text my friends who live in New York to just be like, hey, how's this food? And this was this was the feedback I received. It can be a little saucy, but generally regarded as a fast casual delight. And then <laughs> my other friend said, I think Cava is pretty delicious, TBH. So yeah. there you go. Your first your first friend sounds like a 50 year old banker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little bit saucy, just a little saucy, you know? Um, Yeah, it it definitely has the perception of a healthy option, I think, whether it is or not. Definitely taps into that. The amount of olive oil in hummus now, I don't know if it's the healthy one, but... But the Mediterranean diet is back in. People are talking about it. They're yeah. saying, uh, yeah, they want to go. For, they want to go heavy on the chickpeas. Um, so it, it definitely has a niche there. What I have heard again in the comparison to Chipotle, it is apparently more expensive than Chipotle. So just something to keep in mind there. But then if we kind of look at like who's eating here, like what does the demographic breakdown look like? It's pretty nice. You know, we got a pretty much fifty fifty spread between men and women. Um, when we look at the age demographics, they're pretty evenly split, about twenty percent. And most of the common demographics from you know twenty five to 35, 35 to 44, 45 to 54, that type of thing. And then something that really struck me I thought was interesting, just going back to the price of the menu items, 37% of customers make more than $150,000 a year. So that tells me they're tapped into the right market in terms of like consistency and spend. But it's also probably a reflection of their geographic concentration. You know, there's a lot of these in like New York, Boston, Chicago, places where people make a lot of money. Um, And then just in terms of like how they deliver the food, again, traditional fast casual model, you know, you go in, you wait in line, you go through the assembly line, or you can order through an app, and you can pick it up to go. They've got a couple of drive through locations where that's appropriate. They also provide catering. Um, And then they have an integrated loyalty program, which you like to see, which is great for re-engagement. That seems Mm. to be very 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 popular so um yeah it looks uh from the i haven't eaten there but like i would try it out it looks it looks nice i have eaten there it's quite tasty okay good yeah but uh, that's about all i can say about it yeah well i think you dove into the ipo day itself the actual financials less about the the hummus and the chopped up tomatoes so uh (laughs) so what did its wall street debut look like uh it was great um because it was great for a lot of reasons first it was great because obviously this has been the first successful IPO, not, not so much successful, but customer-facing, big-ticket item, some brand that people recognize IPO in an incredibly long time. So uh, last Thursday, ironically, just around lunchtime, it made its uh, public debut on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker CAVA. This is a bit of, ta- a bit of a tangent, but I love tickers that have the company's full name in it. Yeah, like, it's uh, nice. Uber has one, Etsy has one, so... It's a small, I'm waiting for the UFC one. Um, but uh, 
Its bankers had initially priced the shares at around $19 to $20. This was up to $22 in the face of higher demand. So Cava sold 14.4 million shares. They raised about $318 million and valued the restaurant chain at about $2.45 billion. So this was kind of before it got to the public markets. This was the private deals Cava was doing with what on its IPO roadshow, essentially. Then on the day... Not sorry, the day it was released, the day it went public, it flew up to about $45, I think, was the highest it reached. So that was a gain of 117% on the day. So that just kind of tells of the general excitement around this company. I think there's a lot of factors behind that. I imagine some of it is because there's about 20 cavas around Wall Street. So all the bankers saw something they recognized and flew at it. There was a similar thing with uh, Shake Shack back in the day. So Shake, Shack, Shake Shacks are all over New York. And there was kind of a thought behind this that because they're surrounded by the people making these decisions that it got much more attention than it would if it was a regular burger joint. I don't know. Cavett could fall into that as well. Um, So one of the main reasons for the IPO, which you talked about, is to fund its growth. And as you've seen with these fast casual chains, so much rests on store growth. It's kind of the main ingredient for success we'll say with a lot of them it's what chipotle has done so well um and so yeah other things to note so obviously the company left an awful lot of money on the table i don't know if it'll be delighted with this bankers um it's obviously come down since the 45 dollar high i think it was about 38 when we were starting the day here on wednesday i don't know it's been quite volatile since as you would expect for such a jump and yeah i think once the initial excitement wears off a bit, we will see it recede slightly, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think the 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 general demand here will keep it up, at least for the short term. Uh, apart from Cava itself, I think what's really got investors excited is what we're talking about is a successful IPO, which we haven't had in about two years, maybe. Um, so yeah, that's something we're going to dive into a bit later, but... All in all, it was a very good day both for Cava and for Wall Street, even if Cava did leave some money on the table. Um, Now I'm going to jump into kind of what's created this demand. We'll see. So there's a lot of hype for a restaurant stock and the comparisons to Chipotle, I think, are very obvious. So Mm -hmm. what's pushing investors towards this business and why are they bidding up the price? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the... In terms of just like the way the restaurants function, you know, the fast casual, it's like that's where the Chipotle comparison comes from. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to go back and see what conditions that Chipotle IPO'd in um, all the way in 2006, just to kind of see, you know, are the financial conditions the same? So it's not only a comparison in terms of food and style, but also in terms of financials and numbers. Um, and actually, very similarly, in 2006, when Chipotle made its big splash onto Wall Street, it also saw a 100% gain um, on its IPO day. Um, and as we know, like that stock has gone on to what it must be up more than 100x at this point, and it trades at an absolutely astronomical valuation. And it really is kind of one of these big darlings of Wall Street now at this point. Um, but when Chipotle IPO'd, it had 140 restaurants, which is about double what Cava is currently sitting at, which I thought was interesting. Um, and within a year of IPOing that had been pushed up to 600 locations. So as you said, it was an absolute aggressive expansion mode. We haven't seen that same type of roadmap from Cava. They are definitely expanding, but not like opening 150 restaurants in a year. Like that is incredibly aggressive. Um, 
Chipotle also had restaurant level margins of about 23% in its initial filing. Cava is sitting around there. They're in at about 20% at the minute. Um, so not too bad. But interestingly, Cava is well outperforming a lot of other fast casuals that already are on the market. So places like Noodles and Company and Sweetgreen that have a similar model. So that is actually great to see. Um, and in terms of uh, restaurant level profit margins, again, Chipotle and Cava in, in 2023 are actually on the same level. So Chipotle coming in at 26%, Cava coming in at 25%. So that's good to see. Um, but, but one thing that is worth noting and that we probably should discuss and dissect and, and, and wonder if this changes um, our interest in the stock is that when Chipotle IPO'd in 2006, it was profitable. It had already mm-hmm. achieved profitability and it had been profitable for two years, um, which as we know, once you hit that milestone as, as, a, as a growth company, it really does change the story. You know, it means that you don't have to sit around every single quarter and say, don't worry, we're coming to profitability. We're getting there. We're shrinking margins. We're figuring out efficiencies. To already yeah. have that upon IPO day, I think is pretty significant. And um, I just butt in as well and say they were profitable while expanding that fast. You know, yeah. I, I, CABA aren't profitable and they're, they're getting closer. I think in their last quarter, they, they shrunk their losses significantly. But they also have a $318 million expansion plan coming off the back of this IPO too, which is mm-hmm. going to cost a lot of money. So, Yeah, and I, I think it's it's also worth mentioning that like we talk about the interesting way they've grown was through this acquisition of Zoe's and, and that type of thing. It's worth mentioning that Zoe's was an IPO in and itself. It came onto the market in 2014, again, had a very hot initial day, went up 100%, and then really, really, really struggled. And that turned out to be really great for Kava because, as I mentioned at the top of the story, they picked up Zoe's for very little. But that was because their shares dropped to $12.75 a share, um, which was well below where it topped out in its IPO day, which was over $40. Mm. So the reason that Zoe's shares eventually ended up falling by by such a significant margin was because they could never become profitable the entire time they were sitting on the market the four years from 2014 to 2018 so it is worth noting that i do think profitability is going to be the most important indicator for this stock and i know kava and management has repeatedly said we're getting there we're getting there we're getting there and they are like they're very close um but i think that's going to be the big headline moving forward yeah and i think it comes into the valuation issue as well for sure yeah, definitely. And I know you were you were looking into that. It was sky high in IPO day. Yeah. So I think this is the big issue with the stock right now. And we're going back to the Chipotle comparison because I think that is so baked into everything around this story. Um, just because there's an, assum- uh, there's an assumption that this is the next Chipotle, I guess. you know, And we see how well Chipotle has done. You called it 100 bag, I'd say it's probably more. I, I can't quota right now but it all comes back to this phrase that's bandied about on wall street a lot and it's history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes and unfortunately what this leads to investors looking for is the next x or trying to emulate the success of a stock in a newer younger business so we we see it across a bunch of different industries one of the ones i'm going to call out now is an egregious example is celsius holdings have you heard of this company oh yeah they're the energy drink uh, water company yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an energy drinks company. And because it looks a bit like the early stages of Monster Beverages, which is famously the best performing stock of the last 25 years, it trades at a tech valuation. I think it's 14 times sales or something. And I think it might, it might even be profitable for companies selling fancy Red Bulls. Like. And I see a lot of similarities here with Cava and then the big overarching brother of Chipotle. So Chipotle trades at a price to sales ratio is about six. 
slightly over six and a price to earnings ratio of about 55. That is a very expensive stock. That's a very expensive any type of stock. That's a very expensive restaurant stock. And many would see that as overvalued, don't want to touch it. But it has about 17 years of amazing shareholder returns, high class execution and innovation track record, few billion coming in free cash flow this year. So it's expensive, but for many it's worth it. There's a lot of loyalty behind it too. For others not, and that's fine. Uh, but it's laid out this roadmap for this type of fast dining chain done right. Cava, after its IPO, is trading at a price to sales ratio of six and a half. It doesn't have a price to earnings ratio because as we discussed, it's not profitable yet. It also doesn't have any of that goodwill built up as a public company like Chipotle has. So because it's a similar business model and could, and that word could is doing an awful lot of heavy lifting there, but could emulate the success of Chipotle, investors have bid it up to completely unsustainable levels. So for me right now, and I don't know, you're kind of looking at me the same way, it is an exciting business and I do like the business, but the stock is priced to beyond perfection and falls into kind of untouchable category is harsh, but maybe not far off. Um, So... There's an example, and you mentioned it here as well, or it could be a forewarning rather than an example, is Sweetgreen. Yeah. Uh, so that had a big IPO in 2021, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hype, st- right in the hype cycle. Like. Yeah, and the stock is down about 80% since, and it kind of similar business models, the lunchtime rush, maybe that Wall Street, there's about 20 Sweetgreens between Bond Street and uh, Battery Park. You know, That might make a difference yeah. too, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, all of it adds up to just maybe avoiding it for now yeah yeah i I think that's fair enough and that's kind of how i would that's like kind of how i would feel about it as well it's it's also the thing of like it's so easy to call a stock a chipotle when chipotle has already gotten to where it is you know everyone likes to forget about all of the horribleness that chipotle went through like in 2000 what was it 14 when they (laughs) poisoned everybody the the e coli debate yes like it's just like we're such a long way off into into initiate a position on a stock with such a high valuation and you know just like so much uncertainty and no profitability yeah i would agree like it's we we definitely have to take a step back but i suppose we should swing back towards the positive though one thing we can take away from this is it does seem like the market and investors are warming up to the ipo market it seems like they are now open to the idea of looking at new companies uh do you think that cava's big debut is an indication that there might be more private companies ready to take the leap Mm, yeah, I think this is where it gets it's interesting because Cava's IPO is a big win for venture capitalists. And we all know it's great for those poor venture capitalists to start feeding their families once again. But I mentioned it uh, in the intro. It's the first VC-backed company to go public at a unicorn valuation this year. Its current market cap is about double that of its last private valuation back in 2021. So seeing this kind of exit um, will probably perk up a lot of other private financiers um so yeah i I think it is a good thing for the overall market and definitely for the ipo market we haven't seen much activity in the ipo market since about 2021 when we mentioned hype was hype was everywhere um since then the appetite for new entrants to the market is basically non-existent 2022 saw the worst slowdown in new ipo offerings this century so the reaction to cava's ipo which I know it's a restaurant stock, but it still has a lot of the same qualities that have been shown for so long. So it's unprofitable, high valuation, growth stock. It may indicate that 
this famine might be up and could open the floodgates for these businesses that have been waiting for the right time to go public. I imagine there's a lot of VCs sitting in the sitting in the wings waiting for something like this, waiting for that kind of inflection point. And you know, they're and then you have to think as well about employees who have been sitting on these share options waiting for that exit point too. I think this is a real issue with Stripe which is one of the companies that I think is probably the most anticipated IPO, maybe that or SpaceX, where we have companies sitting on shares for 10 years, maybe. Early investors are the same, where they're just looking for their exit point. They're ready to become millionaires because they've been promised this for so long. And Stripe had its own issues. I I don't want to call it out, but there might have been a bit of hubris behind the Collisons where they were like, oh, we don't need to go private. And now it's coming back to buy them a small bit. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at Stripe. I would look at Reddit. I know Reddit's gone through its own issues right now, but they're the two most anticipated IPOs from the private markets that people are waiting for. I know restaurants, uh, the steakhouse Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse. Yeah. I think it like serves steak on like a sword, and you Very chop it expensive. off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that and a Korean barbecue chain called Jen Restaurant Group. Have you heard of these? No, I haven't heard of them. No, they both filed regulatory paperwork. So they are, they will be going public. And then Panera Bread and Fat Brands Twin Peaks. Have you heard of them? No. No. So oh, they, I do know Twin Peaks, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, maybe Fat Brands <laughs> is just the parent company. Um, they've indicated interest as well. So I think... I am not saying because Cava did a good IPO, Stripe is going to go public next month, but there's green shoots there. And I think restaurant-wise, it's shown an appetite for it. So yeah, overall, I think it is very promising. Yeah, I think we're kind of also seeing indications of that even in the private market, even in like ludicrous senses. Because of the whole AI hype, we're seeing a number of big companies be like, oh yeah, we're AI enabled and we just raised $40 million in private equity. And it's like, oh. So I suppose there is money to be had. It's floating around. So um, yeah, it definitely seems seems like there is a, a bit more of an appetite for an IPO. I do actually have a very funny story about Fogo de Chao, which will which completely diverts this conversation and is in no way about financials. But um, in March, I was in New York and I was uh, wanted to go to the MoMA and I was with a bunch of my friends. Um, but we had made our own lunches and had brought our own lunches because I'm not a millionaire and I cannot eat in Manhattan every day. And so we had our little our little sandwiches and our backpacks and we got searched going into the MoMA and they were like, you can't bring any food in. And we were like, well, what? we were like, can we put it in the coat check? And they were like, absolutely not. You can't put food in the coat check. So we were standing outside the MoMA like, like, what are we going to do? And across the street from the MoMA is a Foco de Chao. And my friend Chloe wandered in there with a bag of sandwiches and went to the coat check girl in Foco de Chao. And she's like, hi, I'm really sorry. Could I coat check these sandwiches? <laughs> no, I will not be eating in the restaurant. It's just the MoMA won't let me take them in. And the woman at Fogo de Chao was like, oh, yeah, they're really strict at the MoMA. Yeah, that's okay. You can leave them with me. And she gave her a coat check ticket and took the sandwiches and put them in the back. There you go. Yeah. So they're good some, people at Fogo de Chao. Good people. Check in your sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. So that was good. 
Okay, on that note, um, we're going to do a quick promo for our weekly newsletter, Charging and Fearless. So we are delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market. It's completely free and no one else is covering the markets we've covered. So we are going to deliver to you a weekly stock pitch that could be from Amsterdam, Tokyo, Paris or anywhere in between. And just working on one that's from the Helsinki Stock Exchange. So there you go. I didn't even know there was a Helsinki Stock Exchange before I started researching this company. Uh, so that is a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have a red in 30 seconds flat and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. Sign up in the show notes for this episode. Okay, back to everyone's favorite new podcast section. Big deal or no big deal. Uh, there's a few interesting stories in the bag for this week. So I'm going to start with uh, a story from our old friend Facebook or Meta um, up to their old tricks. So the headline is Meta lowers the minimum age for its Quest headsets from 13 to 10. So very surprising to see Meta going corrupting the minds of the youth once again. Yeah. Big deal or no big deal, Amory? Um, from a business standpoint, I would say no big deal. How many meta headsets are you going to sell to children? Probably not that many. Um, slight big deal for how bad is this going to be for kids? So what they basically did is they said children aged between 10 and 12 can now obtain a parent-managed meta account, which will allow them to have an age-appropriate VR experience. They didn't detail what that means. Uh, what they did say, though, is that children will not be allowed on the Meta Horizon Worlds, which is the open VR experience, you know, like the interactive, the kind of metaverse that they have developed. The reason being... To, to decrease the likelihood of them interacting with predators so that's great that they've identified that as a problem but haven't fixed it um the issue that we're going to have here though is that the u.s surgeon general hasn't figured out yet if strapping a vr headset to your child for a prolonged period of time is bad for their eyes or their development uh, last month they actually did put out a warning telling parents that prolonged social media exposure for someone under the age of 13 um, is bad for preteens mental health and social development um, but they within the same note said that they do not have enough data to fully understand um, how much something like a fully immersive VR environment could be harmful. Um, mm. So I think something like that is going to be a big indicator if this is, is going to take off. And then also just like parents' appetites in general. I know that we have that kind of iPad generation where children are walking around with iPads all the time and they're fully plugged in and they're blasting Bluey at an ungodly volume in a restaurant. But I, I, I don't know. Or is like a VR headset is a significant step up from that. So yeah, I can't. A big deal for the children who embrace it fully, not a big deal for Meta. Yeah, I have two things to say. First of all, do you know what Bluey means in Ireland? No. Okay, yeah, well, we'll just ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, I think, I know that we're looking for research-based evidence and all the rest, but shouldn't there just be an assumption that this is it's not bad. good? That's just yeah. <laughs> not going to be good for 10-year-olds to be in yeah. another reality. Um yeah. So yeah, a fair play to the Surgeon General, but I think you can just be like, yeah, look, we're, we're going to give you some evidence eventually, but let's just assume no. Yeah, that probably let's, should have been the warning. Let's yeah. err on the side of don't do this. Yeah. Yeah. Just pure logic. Maybe would have told us that. But um, moving on now, second headline um, that we saw this week was anti-ESG funds fail to gain traction in the US. Mike, big deal or no big deal? Uh for anti-ESG funds in general, I'm going to go no big deal. I think the premise was looking to take advantage of a certain narrative and it turned into a bit of a political statement rather than 
having any actual long-term strategy behind it. That is in its current form. I think we can get around to it. There's not to say that criticisms criticisms of ESG are not valid. In fact, I'm going to make a statement here that could be very much refuted by anyone that has a clue listening in. But I think there's enough evidence to say that it's almost a failed experiment at this stage in terms of ESG. Like Not with its intention, of course, but with its execution. I saw somewhere that there are tobacco companies ranking above Tesla with their ESG <laughs> scores. Like, yeah. what are we even doing here? It's, it's a bit like the Surgeon General logic, just like someone takes a step back and looks at this logically and is like, what is the point of this if that is happening? And and that that's just, you know, if you set out strict, strict criteria, you've allowed certain asset managers, first of all, to take advantage of higher fees without really having to do much too much different. But as well as that, you're letting certain companies, those tobacco companies, game the system so that it's essentially invalidates the whole thing. If there comes a point where ESG is done right and actually takes into account like a holistic approach rather than a tick the box exercise, then there might be room for an anti-ESG fund because then it's actually targeting companies that have been, we'll say, ignored because they don't fall into this bracket successfully. Yeah. But like, you know... Yeah. If you you could have Tesla in an anti ESG fund the way it's going because they ignore the criteria and just operate normally, whereas they might be one of the most important businesses towards climate change out there right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna say not a big deal, but also that ESG is such a mess that I don't think we can make a big deal out of it right now. Do you think with the ESG stuff? Do you think it's st- like things getting lost when we move from the attempting to quantify something that's qualifiable because like step one of should you qualify for an esg fund should be like is your product a carcinogen but like that's not quantifiable so they've that's been omitted so then we end up with cigarette companies being included in an esg ranking Mm -hmm. um but so do you feel like there's a a place that a fund manager could sit down and be like i am going to assemble a council of people and we're going to pick the stocks rather than running it through some type of big advanced screener yeah, but then doesn't it just become subjective to that council? Yeah. And I, 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 I don't know. I don't have a solution for this. I'm just throwing rotten tomatoes from the crowd. Um, but it's clearly broken. Did you hear about this story? It was a logging company in the States. Um, oh, it was a bizarre bit of just gaming the system. But basically, they got a huge a load of money from grants for not cutting down trees. Oh, because because of the the credits, the carbon credits. Yes. So yeah. the forests they owned, they calculated how much trees they didn't cut down. They didn't talk about the trees that they were cutting down, but how much trees they did cut down, they didn't cut down. And they claimed back hundreds of millions in carbon credits for it. Yeah, I've like heard about one this. One of the worst deforestation companies in the world was making money from from whatever carbon credits are there to yeah. to promote actual growing trees and keeping this yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, because I think when people envision carbon credits, they think, oh, people are planting trees. But no, you're like financially sponsoring a tree to not be cut down is what's yes. happening. Oh, it's just insane. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree completely. So that, that, that's, that's exactly, that's my issue, I think, is the system is yeah. there to be gamed. Yeah, and yeah. because of that, you can't really take ESG too seriously. But... If we have a system that actually works, then there probably is an advantage because a lot of funds and a lot of institutional investors won't be able to go and buy oil companies or cigarette companies or whatever else. 
And so there'd be intrinsic value there to be found. So I think the premise of an anti-ESG fund makes sense, but in its current form, there's no point because ESG itself kind of, not that it doesn't make sense, but it's not really doing what it should be doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. that's that's the rant over. Um, <laughs> all right. Next up, we have Warren Buffett doubles down on Japan, increasing stakes in five trading firms. So not surprising to see Buffett looking away from the US for some value right now. Big deal or no big deal? Um, I would actually, I would say big deal. Maybe not so much for Berkshire, but kind of what this says for the rest of the market. So just a bit of info on that. It is picking up a, a larger stakes in five Japanese trading firms that already had established positions in them. I think it means that its average ownership is coming up to about 8.5%. Warren has already said we will not exceed 95 Um, But these trading companies, they're all like big, diversified, long-term investment value play type things. So they're like the Japanese version of Berkshire itself. Um, and Warren Buffett has said that they intend to hold these assets for a long time. Um, so it seems like, you know, he feels that the wheels are kind of moving in Japan. You know, I think people forget, but for a really long time after the big market crash that they experienced in the 1980s, p- a lot of international investment moved out of Japan. And that was because the way that the legislation went into effect afterwards and the way the economics in the country changed, essentially companies were told to not reward shareholders, not to focus on their stock price. And also more importantly, just to kind of hold on to cash. We've also seen wages in Japan stagnate significantly, but it seems that those conditions are changing. Uh, There was just a a couple of big headlines that ran in the New York Times uh, was that in recent months, Canon shareholders have demanded a diverse board of directors, Citizens Watch, has said it would buy back up to a quarter of its shares, and the owners of Uniqlo has promised that its workers will receive a 40% raise this year. The Tokyo Stock Exchange has implored companies to be conscious of their share price. So it does seem that the concept of investing is returning to the minds of corporations in Japan, but also kind of the people, and therefore it means a lot of international investors are turning their attention back towards the country. However, that does mean that, like, we're talking about this now, but the bull has kind of already run a little bit. Japan's Nikkei 225 index has jumped nearly 30% this year, which is outperforming the S&P 500 uh, by a pretty solid margin. Um, and the, the the index hasn't been this high since the early 1990s, uh, which, you know, a bit ominous. But um, yeah. yeah, I do think that if this continues and is consistent over the next several years, there definitely is investments to be made in Japan. There are very good companies that function there. I, I, I read it like Japan still does have the second largest uh, free economy in, in the world. So there are huge international brands that are there that are traded there the, whose stocks have basically been going nowhere because of just the, the way that the country functions. So um, yeah, it's definitely something to watch. And you know, if, if you're an investor interested in, in kind of international exposure, it w- um, have a look at some at some at some Japanese companies. Mm. The only thing I'd say about that, though, is that aren't they a lot of them very complex and messy oh, congl- yeah. conglomerates almost? So yeah. what, a lot, what a lot happens in Japan is a company, a public company will buy shares in other public, public companies, essentially. So the ownership mm-hmm. and the governance and everything is all a bit of a rigmarole. Um, yeah. I've seen a lot of activist investors going into Japan recently. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw Elliott Management. I think we saw Dan Loeb's activist fund as well so yeah there's definitely opportunities there and just for any listeners i know we've mentioned this before but a great read on wikipedia is the japanese asset bubble is that the right way of saying it yeah Uh, yeah um for irish listeners it's like celtic tiger on steroids on crack (laughs) on meds whatever you want to call it yeah 
Um, all right, finally, our last headline for the day. The year's U.S. stock market gains are almost entirely made up of just five companies. This story is about the concentration of the top of the stock market. Mike, big deal or no big deal? Yeah, this is definitely big deal. Um, I think uh, people are looking to change the name of the index to the S&P 5. Mm-hmm. Um, so just we've seen this happen very recently and are well aware of the pitfalls of such concentration at the top of the market. But the story is essentially Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google and NVIDIA are responsible for almost all of the S&P 500 gains this year. If you include Facebook and Tesla into that, the S&P would actually be negative without them. Sorry, does that make sense? I said that a weird way. Um, yeah, so basically without the top seven companies in the S&P 500. Yeah, okay, I got you. The S&P would be negative. I'm sorry, <laughs> you're looking at me funny. I deserve that. It should be more clear talking on a podcast. Um, yeah, look, there's a lot to be said for the reasons behind this, whether it's the AI hype cycle, which is certainly there for a lot of the companies up there, NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Google for sure, or just the fact that inflation seems to be cooling Investors are anticipating the end of rate, rate hikes. Whether that happens or not is very much up in the air. But um, yeah, there's no denying that these moves from these five or seven companies have been unsustainable and are probably paving over the cracks of an overall less healthy market than what it appears at the first glance. So I'm going to say big deal and that, yeah, these five to seven businesses will have to cool off at some point and then their overall impact on the market will be felt even more acutely on the way down. So yeah, I think the start of the year has been very hot. It's probably been too hot. You just need to look at the Nasdaq, which these I think those five companies make up about twenty four percent of the S and P. I'd say it's about nearly half of the Nasdaq at this stage, and they're making trillion dollar moves. You know what I mean? Apple is yeah. up nearly forty percent. Microsoft's up nearly forty percent. Google the same. Nvidia is up nearly one hundred and sixty percent or something mad. Mm-hmm. Like that's what goes up has to come down and i'm afraid because so much of the market depends on that right now 24 yeah. like we said yeah it just it does not seem sustainable and we'll see we'll see what happens i wouldn't be overly hopeful and my my yeah. my proclamations of the boom is back and we're all gonna have a bunch of ipos <laughs> that might be short-lived um yeah. Would would you say then if you're an investor and you're, you know, assembling your portfolio, would you maybe still be looking for opportunities in more mid to uh small cap companies that haven't experienced, you know, such a fantastical run from the beginning of the year? Mm, yeah, or look, we were talking about Japanese companies, but you could look yeah. at international stocks. We were talking offline there recently about an emerging markets ETF and the difference in valuations. So yeah, I think in terms of where was I writing this? I was writing this up for that Emerging Markets ETF. Uh, I did a little note and they were comparing the historical performance of international stocks versus US stocks. And the US stocks have actually blown international stocks out of the water, but only for the last 10 years. Yeah. So from this is from Ben Carlson. From 1970 to 2012, I think, US stocks returned about 9.7% a year and international stocks returned 9.6% a year. So I think the last 10 years were certainly a trouncing, but... I don't know if that overperformance is there to stay and there might be opportunities elsewhere. And one place that tells you an awful lot about international stocks is our newsletter, Charging Infidus. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, also, actually, a note on that, which I, when I was doing the coverage for the ja- uh, Japanese stock market piece, it is worth noting that a lot of American-based ETFs or funds that are, you know, international coverage, you know, if you're, like, trying to diversify your 401k or whatever, they are tend to hold a lot of European stocks and very few Asian stocks. It was something, like, on average, only 10 or 15% of those funds are compromised of Japanese stocks. So it seems like a lot of international money, like, hasn't been anywhere near that market. So it is something worth checking in with if you're looking at an international fund. What does the geographic diversity look like? Because um, I know you can get specialized ones that are just, I know Vanguard runs a, I think it's called the Pacific Fund, and it's just like Japan, South Korea, a few Chinese stocks. So yeah. Yeah. And in general, it's just good practice to have that international diversification. I know you can have yeah. that within multinationals that trade across every nation and stuff. But just mm-hmm. to look at certain areas of the world, for sure, there is a lot of opportunities out there. And it's so easy now with different type of brokerages and stuff yeah so yeah expand your horizons i think would be the the recommendation there and it does look like american stocks are getting a bit frothy we'll say yeah Yeah. okay uh that's it for today's show folks just a quick word from our friends at vodafone business before we close out uh for me vodafone business has always been a reliable provider for mobile and broadband needs but now they are so much more They now offer a whole array of digital apps from productivity tools and security solutions to IT support and even website builders. They're no longer a telecoms provider. They're a comprehensive technology partner. They're stepping up to help businesses grow and flourish in an increasingly digital world, offering insightful digital advice, cutting edge solutions on top of their dependable mobile network and broadband services. So if you're on a digital journey yourself, remember Vodafone Business is there to support, guide and empower you every step of the way. Okay, Anne-Marie, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, tell your friends about us, leave a review, share it to your WhatsApp group, do whatever you want, do all the good (laughs) stuff. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.